This is a Maybe You Like It production. To find more productions, including podcasts, radio plays, and stage plays, visit www.maybeyoulikeit.co.uk. Maybe you like it, maybe you don't. So, this will probably be the last one of the Netflix lot, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm kind of all Netflix I, yeah. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Do Try This at Home, the podcast where we do try at home to rewrite mediocre movies and make them better. Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. You got that's it. it. As as always, I'm I'm joined by uh, incredibly talented screenwriter Harrison Gale. How are you doing, Harrison? I'm I'm doing. <laughs> I'm hanging in there. Yeah. How are you, Caleb? Well, that's all we can do. Yeah, hanging in there. Wait, have also. you introduced yourself yet? <laughs> have you said your first name? I'm Caleb. Name? <laughs> I don't think I I didn't. <laughs> well, hold on now. <laughs> do I need to give my full name? <laughs> Do you want me to introduce you, or do you want to do it? <laughs> no, I can do okay. it. I'm, I'm also, I'm also here. I'm Caleb Barron. <laughs> as, as you can tell, it's taken us so long to record this next episode. We like forgot yeah. how to record a podcast. <laughs> and the the reason it's taken so long is various uh, external factors, but I think there's been one internal factor, and that is that Netflix movies suck oh yeah and this welcome Oof. to our big finale of uh netflix season here at do try this at home yeah harrison do you want to tell the folks at home what film we will be looking at sure so uh today we're going to be looking at uh, a film from the period piece uh division of of netflix <laughs> movies uh, the period drama genre um, and we're taking a look at their uh, recent adaptation of Persuasion by Jane Austen. So this version uh, is a new version directed by Carrie Cracknell and written by Ron Bass and Alice Victoria Winslow. Um, and I mention Ron Bass because, or Ron Bass, but I've, I've usually when it's a person's <laughs> name, I've heard it, I've heard it pronounced as Bass. So sorry, Ron, if Ron I'm mispronouncing Bass. your name. Um, but shoot. What did he write? He wrote, oh, he wrote Rain Man, which I thought yeah, was, yeah, was yeah. kind of interesting. Wow, um, this guy's 80. Yeah, he's, <laughs> and he's still, he's still <laughs> kicking. So good for you, Ron. Um, but I, I figured I would mention that because I, the writing was something that I did, um, you know, in particular, you know, have some, have some thoughts on. But this, uh, yeah. this, you know, of course, Persuasion has been adapted many times. Um, just as many of other Jane Austen's novels have been uh, adapted to screen. Um, but this version features Dakota Johnson uh, and uh, Cosmo Jarvis in, in the, the main parts. But uh, essentially yeah. it is about this, uh, this young woman uh, who is of you know, noble birth, but her family's running out of money. Uh, and eight years ago, um, her, uh, she had fallen in love with Frederick Wentworth, uh, who had no money and no stature, and she was persuaded, um, by a close family friend. <laughs> See what I did there? She was persuaded by a close family friend to, to turn down his offer of engagement, and basically the past eight years she's been suffering because she's still in love with Wentworth, um, but feels like she might have missed out on her, her chance for happiness. But then, he shows up mm. again eight years later, mm. um, and she she has another chance at chance at love if she can stop him from um, falling for someone else instead. So that's that's the rundown yeah. of, of the of the movie. Have have okay. Here's before we get into it. Have you seen other adaptations of this, or and also and or uh, have you read the book? Um, I. So listen, I like skimmed persuasion in college. 
<laughs> because that's what you do as an English major. Uh, you yeah. never have enough time to actually. I mean, I'm sure there's like a group of people who are like, "What is the matter with you? I read all the books. Okay, well you're a nerd, and I'm not. So I did. I usually had to skim. I had fun. Yeah, I had fun. I had a life. So um, I usually, you know, not usually, but sometimes I did have to skim. And persuasion was one of the instances in which I mm. in which I did have to skim. But I have read other Jane Austen novels, like in in okay. earnest, um, Emma, uh, Pride yeah. and Prejudice, um, uh, Mansfield Park. Um, so mm. I, I, you know, I'm I'm familiar with with Jane Austen as as a writer. Yeah. What about you, Caleb? I don't I don't want to shock you. I also studied English at university, what? and I. I have never read a Jane Austen novel. Okay, that sounds like you had to make an effort. She's pretty hard to avoid. Well, yeah, because of my course, I never really had to... I never had to read wow. her. In fact, I'm trying to think of a reading list she was ever on. I think I just sort of, like, just missed it. I guess really, your professors did, just hate women. Did the Victorians. <laughs> no, you know, I did all the, like, big names, like the Brontes and Elizabeth Gaskell right. and George Eliot and play people. Sure. But, um I don't know. I just missed Austin, and this was like to the horror of some of my uh, tutors when <laughs> we had a we had a lunch at like one of their houses in third year, and I'd recently seen Emma full stop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the way you say the title, uh, which I really liked. I I had a lot of fun with that film. Yeah, me too. That was probably one of the first Austin adaptations I'd ever seen. I mean, not a bad place to start. <laughs> yeah it was good fun and uh and some of my tutors were talking about it and i was like oh yeah i saw that they were di- talking about it disparagingly i should oh, say really? and i was like oh i i really I had a good time with it and they were like really and i was like oh yeah well i guess i've never read the book though and they were like well that would be why you had a really good time with it. And i was like, I, okay, I well. read emma and i liked the the most recent version yeah but they're they're probably purists yeah. harrison they're just ugh, yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> If any of them are listening right now. Yeah. <laughs> Ugh. Ugh. If you didn't like that movie, your opinion is wrong. Anyway, I so <laughs> <laughs> I, I but I think Emma is a good one to think about and I nearly rewatched it before we recorded mm. uh, but then it wasn't on not any of the streaming sites so uh no, you know what can you do. Yeah, because I think this film, you know, so Emma came out beginning of 2020 uh it's very possible that the entire production cycle of this film would have been informed by that film and i think mm. there's a lot of evidence to suggest it was <laughs> so yeah um i hadn't we'll even get thought of it. that but that is a good point uh we'll get into it L- let's start let's start we tried to and i think it's something we've we've forgotten to do more and more as time's gone on yeah <laughs> we tried to start with some positives about the film <laughs> i'd like to open with the guy that plays is it wentworth is that the guy's name yes uh his name is cosmo jarvis <laughs> that's definitely a, that is something that is a positive for this film because that is one of the coolest that names his name is cosmo jarvis that's one of the coolest names <laughs> one of the coolest names i have ever heard Cosmo Jarvis sounds like the name of like a 1950s like smoking room singer. Yeah, like he does like covers of all the standards. I see. I think Cosmo Jarvis to me is like, uh, like an 80s. He he seems like the kind of like spaceman who fell to Earth in like an 80s like family favorite. That, yes, I see that as well. That's what it reads to as me, which to me that means it must be a really sick name. But um <laughs> you may disagree. <laughs> but just the name, like not Yeah, yeah. Not the, as an actor, yeah, just like yeah. what yeah, just his name. name could be. Yeah. yeah. Um the other the other thing I do want to bring up uh is not that they were necessarily a great part of it, but it was nice to see a couple of favorites from my childhood uh doc brown who's a rapper and actor plays charles mosgrove yes uh he well comedian as well also known as ben bailey smith yeah, his birth name yes <laughs> anyway um, uh, i know he... him from the uk version of law and order and i thought oh, he was great no in that yeah. i've not actually seen that so he's now so he's in andor right now uh which is fun oh. to see N- nice to see him getting some roles 
because he's yeah. often like when I was growing up. So he was on this show, uh, this kids show called The Four O'clock Club, <laughs> and um, basically the premise of that of was like this this uh, kid and his older brother. His older brother was a teacher at the school, and he was a pupil. Mm. Um, and this kid was always getting into trouble and getting into detention with his brother. You know, ha- you know, having to spend detention with his brother, and they called it The Four O'clock Club. Oh, uh, yeah, great! Just a lovely premise for a show. Good fun. Doc Brown was always very good in it. Very warm. Uh, the other one as well is Mia McKenna Bruce, who played Mary Musgrove, who was on was it Tracy Beaker or was it The Dumping Ground? But one of the one of these film one of these um, kids shows that was based off the the books of Jacqueline Wilson. Is this someone you're aware of in the U.S.? Uh, no, I don't think it. I don't think wow. it made it over here. This is, I don't think it would. It's so it's so aggressively British, but um, Tracy Beaker was like she's a character who's like she uh, grows up in a care home, and and the show is about mm. kids kids in a care home. But it's just like it's I I imagine it would be incomprehensible to an American audience. So I'm not surprised. It didn't yeah. But it's just fun to see these 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 people who were on like CBBC when I was growing up, which is a children's BBC getting into their netflix movies i i enjoyed that even if uh doc brown did almost nothing in the film and <laughs> um, mary musgrove is like one of these characters just like you could play in your sleep because it's just so right. uh, egregious what she has to do yeah <laughs> yeah did you have any positives um <laughs> mine aren't really I about have the any film positives um i always like looking at henry golding yeah, um, yeah, you can't go wrong. You yeah, just can't you, can't, go wrong. you can't go wrong. And <laughs> of course, I would die for Richard E. Grant. I think he's yeah. the greatest thing since <laughs> sliced bread. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, it, this definitely was a movie. <laughs> it wasn't. Yeah, you can't deny that. I I actually want to touch on Richard E. Grant um, as a way into maybe the first thing I want to talk about because mm. Richard E. Grant, who plays, um, I'm just going to say all the. I don't even. I can't. I'm not going to remember any of the names. So, but he plays like the main character's dad, right? Yes. And Sir Walter Elliot. He's yeah. He's the first like very clear connection to Emma. Full stop for me <laughs> because he Emma is the Bill. Stop. Yeah, I'm going to keep calling that. He's the Bill Nye, right? He's the older yes. guy, bit eccentric, wears really flamboyant suits, and kind of. They don't really know what to do with his character whatsoever. So they just put him in a nice suit and then just say, Richard E. Grant, you do your thing kind of thing. Yeah. So that's that's one connection. But also uh, the big connection I want to talk about there is costume. And, and this like, yeah, this very like hi- him, his character in particular was this very over stylized uh, version of period costume. The, the costume designer was Marianne uh, Agetoft, who's done like loads of the British period dramas. She'd done like mm-hmm. Poldark and things like that. And it's interesting because I, I thought that attempt to do something more stylized, more in the vein of Emma Full Stop, was actually to. <laughs> It was actually to the detriment of the rest of the film because every other character was just wearing normal clothes. <laughs> like, yeah. And, and so I thought it was fun to see him in that. But actually, everyone looked so bland that it didn't carry off at all. Whereas in Emma, full stop, like they're all wearing vibrant colors and they're all wearing over-the-top period versions, like over-the-top versions, sorry, of period clothing that it kind of works when you see Bill Nye in these like fun, silly suits. Yeah. And actually, like I was thinking about even just the basic costumes, like the work I've seen her do on like Poldark is 10 times better. And that's on a TV budget. Like it blew yeah. my mind that this film was like just turning out some of the least interesting period costumes I've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, I think, and I think maybe that gets a little bit to what we've, kind of been talking about this season of like what is the like what makes a netflix film a netflix film what is the netflix aesthetic and i thought that this was just like textbook example of not making a choice like there's no choices made here and this is what it looks like when you go as neutral as possible in every way and then when you do take somewhat of a risk it's also kind of safe and doesn't really go as far as it should which then you know makes it Makes it feel like like a wet fish kind of handshake. Like you're making the effort, but you're not really putting in the energy and the follow through. Yeah. Um, but I agree. Especially, like you know, I think if if you're picking one element as to to illustrate that example, I think yeah, the the costuming and as you say, like compared to 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 her other work, it was kind of bizarre to then 
um, just have it be so unremarkable uh, yeah. in, in this film. And I, I wonder why that like kind of is, to be honest, because like, yeah, you could almost not even really pick out the characters by their costumes very well, I guess, is part of the problem. And to take Poldark as an example, if you took away the person and just showed me the costume, I could tell you who everyone is. And I don't know if I could do the same thing for Persuasion apart from Richard E. Grant's character, you know? Right. And I think, yeah, it definitely to me, it, it sort of smacks of, like you say, like no real creative drive or decision making happening, like either from the top or even like if it is done by committee, like that can work for a film. A film can be made by committee. A film is made by a group of people, mm-hmm. but there doesn't seem to be a driving vision that they're all working towards. And yes. that seems to be the problem. It it looked like recycled costumes from Bridgerton or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. like it didn't. And and even like the choice of locations and, and sets and like that, you know, I, I picked on costume just because I think for me, it was the thing that was most clear. But like, apart from the choice of the like Dorset beaches, which I think is a really like, as obviously a beautiful location to shoot some of those scenes. Um, a, a lot of the like choices of house that they shot in and the sets they were shooting on and all that stuff was just really bland, like really uninteresting. And yeah, uh, and and obvi- and seem to obviously be cu- trying to pick up on some of the visual cues of Emma. Full stop. But mm-hmm. like not ever like reaching the same level of like specificity in what they were what they. Yeah, what they well, what they were and what they looked like, right? Um, and what their aesthetic was. Yeah, and and I wonder if the background of both the you know each of the film's directors uh, mm. had an effect on the way they approached uh, production design because yeah. uh, the director of Emma Full Stop, uh, Autumn De Wilde, is known as mainly as a photographer. And yes. known for her, you know, portraiture and photography of musicians and music videos. And you yeah. know, even things like music videos tend to uh, have a very, you know, distinct or um, focused or intentional kind of visual style, which, you know, of course varies. But but it is done with, with a lot of intention in, in terms mm. of production design, whereas Carrie Cracknell comes from a theater background. Um, yeah, and that's yeah. not to say that somebody with a theater background, you know, can't uh, <laughs> direct a film with like a distinct visual style. But I, I do wonder if that. I mean, I'm sure Autumn De Wilde's background in in photography and, and working in in you know music videos certainly informed the visual style of Emma. Full stop. Uh, yeah. Whereas you know something like the stage. You, you have a little bit more flexibility in terms of like, you know, kind of just emphasizing the action on stage. And if you, you know, if you don't want to add uh, the trimmings, you don't have to. But I think in, in a film, there is kind of a minimum you've, you've got to give because yeah. you're, you're asking people to, to look at this thing and they don't have the advantage of, just having the energy of live people in front of them. So I think, I think it's difficult to, you know, take a minimalist approach to filmmaking in a film's visual style without doing it with clear intentionality that's exactly it's clear intention is the the key there right like it is possible to use minimalism but you have to be so clear in the intention and probably Mm -hmm. you have to be aiming at something a bit more art house than netflix were after and yeah i mean i think it speaks probably to some of what carrie cracknell's like her uh, theater credits are is a lot of like character focused really sort of heavy drama Mm -hmm. which is sort of like stuff that is going to be like really i imagine the work on set with the actors would have been really fruitful but it just isn't going to come through on camera if you don't have all the other elements there right and also i but and we'll get onto it now i guess i think also it what I don't know what work she would have been doing on set, but I imagine that work was at war with what the screenplay is that we've been delivered. Yes. <laughs> um, maybe, I don't know if you want to start on that, on on what what does this screenplay look like? What kind of interpretation of an Austin is this? And what kind of interpretation of a character in particular of the main character is this? Sure. Um, I mean, again, like, you know, I, I haven't read the source material 
fully from start to finish, although I have read other Austen novels. So I'm pretty familiar with the kind of writer that, that Jane Austen is and the way she tells her stories. And I think what's so, what's so masterful about her writing, um, both in the way that she structures her stories and also in the way that she tells them is, um, that, you know, she's, she's not afraid to let, you know, our heroes be unlikable in moments. I mean, like in Emma, you know, she yeah. famously said that, uh, you know, I'm writing a protagonist here that I don't think anybody but me is going to like very much. And indeed, like, you know, and that I think is, is part of Emma's charm, you know, Emma, Emma Woodhouse's charm that she is this, um, you know, somewhat conceited girl that thinks she knows what's best for everybody. And, yeah. you know, was born of a lot of privilege and gets taken down a couple pegs, but still, you know, finds redemption anyway. Um, whereas in Persuasion, I mean, you know, and I did take a look, I did take a look uh, at, at the source material. So I, I would have a clearer sense of, you know, what we're comparing this to. And, you know, in, in the original novel, Anne Elliot is, is something of a tragic figure, especially at the beginning of, of the book that she is the middle child, which remains true in, in the film. But, you know, she's not the prettiest, according to our narrator. And, you know, she's pretty much average. And this is mm. the reason why she's been kind of outcast from her family. And they don't really see very much reason to pay attention to her because, um, you know, she's not like exceedingly beautiful and she's not particularly good at anything. And she kind of reminds them of their own flaws because she is kind and thoughtful. Um, yeah. but I don't know if that, you know, translates quite well to this adaptation. First and foremost, like, I suppose less because of the screenplay and more so just because of the, the casting of, um, <laughs> Anne Elliot yeah. and her sisters, where it's like, well, this woman is supposed to be, you know, average, at least in the eyes of her family, but she's played by Dakota Johnson, who I yes. think it's like, by pretty much, like, you know, objective metrics is, like, a stunning woman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm like, it's pretty hard for me to buy that, well, like, yeah. you know, that they're, they're always putting her down. But then, you yeah. know, I think, I think part of Anne Elliot's character, like, the, the charm of her character, um, is a little bit lost in the attempts to modernize. Yeah. The texts where yeah. we get these asides where, you know, she's... The flea bagification. The flea bagification. Um, <laughs> where she's, you know, has moments where she's breaking the fourth wall. And, you know, rather than hearing it through, like, the free and direct discourse of, of the narrator kind of taking on Anne Elliot's thoughts as um, as it is in, in the novel, um, we kind of get these moments where, you know, the asides are, like, kind of ugly and mean. And not yeah. in like a, not in like a, you know, very human relatable way, but in just this way that makes me not like her. That's it. And, the, it's, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, you've touched on quite a lot there, which is great. But like, I, again, like a, a lot of people call it the flea bagification, but I also think it is a big connection with Emma Full Stop in that like, <laughs> it, it's that, that, oh, like Emma works so well as a protagonist in that film because she is like the flaws we all see in ourselves she is judgy and mm. she does think she knows it all and and her comeuppance is fun to see and her redemption afterwards is fun to see because we're like oh great like you can go through all that and come out the other side a good person um mm -hmm. but like this is just a different character to that. You can't interpret yeah. a different character to be that. Like the the like I've obviously like I said I've not read the source material, but you can tell from watching it the story doesn't match the character. Like that right. the, you can tell the interpretation is poor because you you watch it and everyone's saying how kind she is and how gentle and how wonderful and you're not seeing a character that is that you're seeing a character that's judgy yes. and nasty and which it can be really fun to watch if you're not then wanting us to buy that she's the nicest person in the world yeah and and, and to yeah to touch back on casting like an age thing which I, again I don't want it to be a big deal like age like people can play whatever age but like. If she's meant to be the middle child, the person who's playing Mary Musgrove is like twenty five. 
Yeah, <laughs> like, she looked like like a like a baby. Yeah, it doesn't work <laughs> compared to Dakota, Dakota Johnson, Johnson, who like clearly looks like a woman in her thirties. Is she in her thirties? Like around there? Yeah, right? or, like yeah, which is fine. Like she's meant to be. She's meant sure. to have like lost this love eight years ago and whatever. But like you gotta sell that to me in the rest of the casting. And then obviously there's the issue of, and it's been on Twitter and Letterboxd and things, of Dakota Johnson uh, just does not have a period face. <laughs> the way yeah, I've it's seen like it people say that, like, oh, this actor looks like they know what text messaging is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the other way I've seen it put is uh, Dakota Johnson looks like a woman that's seen an iPhone. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a tricky thing because... That you then get into something that's like around like the exclusivity of casting, and I think the da- the really dangerous thing about that kind of casting is people then equate that with like you have to be this very specific looking, oftentimes white person to fit the mm-hmm. role of period drama. And I definitely don't think that's the case. And I actually think most of the characters in this who weren't white, like most of the actors, fit their roles and their casting and the period setting really, really well. But right. Dakota Johnson didn't. It just no. didn't work. Like I, I, it's not. It's not to do with that. It's just like she's just someone who just didn't fit in the world that the that the film was trying to create. Right. And I, I was thinking about it, and I, I thought, oh, maybe they're trying to make it where she kind of feels anachron. No, like the opposite of anachronistic, which I don't know if there is an opposite. But like she, or is it? Is that the correct word? No, What'd I think call it? I don't. Yeah, I think it would be anachronistic if, no, if what be. you're, yeah, yeah. If what you're saying time. is like that. Yeah, that she feels out yeah, of, yeah, out yeah, of place it, yeah. in in this time. Mm-hmm. That's it. Like, and I thought maybe that's what they were trying to create, but you've got to push it further than that like yeah again I, i've seen a few things do the kind of flea bagification most recently you've seen it with she hulk right i don't know if you watched she hulk i did didn't. i actually really oh, yeah. liked it <laughs> i thought it was i thought it was fine i thought it was fun the thing i liked most about it was tim roth having fun yes so, but um but the, the tim thing roth that, my beloved yeah <laughs> the thing that doesn't work about she hulk for me is that the thing that's so good about fleabag is like you know on every page you know we talk about screenwriting as like a page a minute right on every page we're reminded once or twice at least that fleabag is talking to us mm-hmm. and whereas this film will go 15 minutes without right. us reminding us that the fourth wall can be broken it was the same thing with she hulk though you would go like there'd yeah. be a little bit of chatter to us a whole episode with like one aside and then a little bit of chatter to us at the end and actually what you need is you need a constant reminder that that fourth wall doesn't exist that you right. are there with them that you're there experiencing everything with them and if i think if it had done that the anachronistic elements of like the rest of that casting and that character and stuff might have played off in a more interesting way. I don't know, mm-hmm. but uh, overall it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Or, or I would say cut that element entirely. I, I think yeah, it's, I, I think that, it's yeah. okay, you know, to have a period drama adaptation that is just earnest. I mean, I think that is, that's something that I think Jane Austen did so masterfully in her writing, which was balancing the satire with earnestness. Like yeah. you genuinely, like her, a lot of her work is a satire of, you know, Regency upper class, but at the same time, you do care about the characters because they do also feel like real people, at least the yeah. ones that you're supposed to like and care about and root for. Even like Emma, you know, as you yeah. were saying, um, you know, Emma Woodhouse feels like a real person for, for all of the reasons that you said. Like, you know, she reminds us of the things that we do that we don't, you know, that that other people might find ugly about us so that yeah, we're all guilty yeah. of, of like thinking we know what's best for everybody and put meddling in, in things. And, you know, I'm sure um, I'm sure a lot of people can can relate to that. And even though she is this like, you know, w- woman of privilege, you know, it, she is still very human and, and yeah. has these kinds of these kinds of flaws, whereas um, you know, this characterization of Anne Elliot, I mean, she's almost like an opposite. Like she should be like an opposite to Emma in many ways. Yeah. That absolutely. she is this kind of like long suffering woman whose fatal flaw is that she doesn't speak up for herself. You yeah. know, that is why she loses her, the love of her life eight years prior because she didn't speak up because she let herself be persuaded. Yeah. And, uh, rather than, sticking to to her convictions and 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 her feelings for this person um but we never get a sense that 
this Anne Elliot, uh, like it's hard to believe that this this woman ever was, you know, emotionally weak enough to be persuaded. And yeah. of course, yes, we know realistically, and they mentioned this in the film, like, yes, you know, marriage, especially at that time was this, this it was transactional. Um, and that's fine. But like, you know, but she because, always seems headstrong and like, right, and she could thinking, make a decision for herself. Kind yeah, of you're thinking like this, this woman who, yeah, is very headstrong and seems very independent and yeah. seems to have all of these thoughts that she, you know, tells us every once in a while and has all of these opinions. It's, it's hard to believe that. You know, she could have been, you know, persuaded to to let go of the love of her life so easily. Yeah. Um, and and again, I think that gets to my biggest problem with the writing, which which you kind of are articulated already to a degree, which is that, um, you know, we're we're meant to. There's a lot of things that the script takes for granted um, that we're supposed to be- believe that Anne Elliot is this kind, wonderful person, yeah. just because. They tell us that we should feel yeah. this way. About Henry Golding her. says it. So yeah, like it. yeah, if Henry Golding says it, and all of her friends say it, but we yeah. don't see like the visible, demonstrable behavior that actually illustrates that she is the person who everyone says she is. Instead, yeah. we get a sides where she's like mean. <laughs> yeah, but you know, because the, the one the, there's maybe one or two moments where it kind of did begin to show it, and it was the moments with. Um, the kids with the Musgroves yeah. kids, and I was like, "Yes, this is the Anne Elliot we should be spending the film with." Yes, and it was so weird that most of it wasn't that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I'm with you, and 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 just to return to the thing you said about be- being earnest as well, I I think it's a lost art in Hollywood at the moment of like that thing of being earnest and funny. It's possible mm-hmm. to do both. I mean, you look at like early steve martin films are like yeah there's like an edge to him a comedic edge but like they're earnest films in and of themselves like the stories of them and you see that carry over now with like only murders in the building which like has a real earnest streak to it and it's so refreshing to see or ted lasso or even ted lasso i've not seen ted lasso but um i have and it's very good yeah it's that it's that you know i guess we're seeing some return to it but i think overall is very rare to see someone make something that is both very funny and very earnest at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because it's hard. It's hard to satirize without being angry and mean because yeah. <laughs> a lot of satirists are quite angry and mean. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what makes them so good. But it's, I don't know, it felt like someone was miss. It was missing that craft of like finding the story in it and finding the characters in it. That is a real story that's not just like a flimsy thing to be you know fleabagified or whatever yeah if you're up for it now we should maybe turn our attentions to how we fix these problems that we've identified in the film you've kind of touched on it already (laughs) but i mean i think the big thing to fix the thing that is like the real crime is this film is eye-wateringly dull I was just—I yeah. was—I was at the end of my like, man. It's still going. This. Yeah, I honestly. So, yeah. What are, what are we gonna do? What What in the world shall we do? Um. Well, I mean, I, so I had this idea earlier today while I was thinking about um, you know, getting ready for recording this podcast, and I thought, you know, what what might be interesting that we've also never seen. As, as far as I know, in an adaptation of Persuasion would be to structure it so that we're kind of flashing back and forth between the present day and eight years ago. Like, mm. and, and even the novel doesn't really, like, the none of the novel is really set during this time, you know, for the original, the original union of Anne yeah. and Wentworth. And I would like to see a version where where we actually get to see that, like, yeah. show us more so that we learn how devastating their separation is, how devastating her, you know, the fact that she is persuaded to turn down his engagement is like what, yeah. what a real loss of true love 
that yeah. is. And that gives that, you know, and that gives our, our film real stakes because on top of that as well, which I know we, we sort of talked about casting and Cosmo Jarvis, aside from having a great name, has absolutely <laughs> no chemistry at all whatsoever with Dakota Johnson. Yeah, so I don't yeah. particularly care one way or another if they end up together because I never in a million years would see them as as a couple like you know yeah. there's just no spark there and he's like this hero of the sea but he's desperately awkward oh and, yeah but i think the i think it's meant to be that he's desperately awkward because of what happened eight years ago so show us the guy that like swept her off her feet right to then see and and the guy who would then become a hero to then see him return to the land return to england and and he's suddenly a nervous wreck because of this decision he made eight years ago and this decision that was made for both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, there's definitely an opportunity there. Uh, and you know what it's just making me think as well is like you can be mirroring the two plots. You can, it, you know, right. when we talk about tragedy, so like the perfect like structure of like Romeo and Juliet is that it's a comedy for the first two and a half acts or even mm-hmm. three acts, right? So a lot of tragedy, we start at the like peak of the hero's journey and then we just see it, the tragic turn that they take. But Romeo and Juliet does this thing where it's a comedy and then a tragedy. And it's what makes it so compelling. Uh, what this film could do is it can show us the comedy and the tragedy next to each other, mm-hmm. layered on top of each other. So you have these two trajectories mirroring each other one on their way up one on their way down but the climax being that the one that's on its way down is what the climax is they get back together and the one that's Mm -hmm. on its way up them falling in love is the climax is that they're persuaded to not be together and if you layer the two over the top even without kind of even without maybe even without telling the audience that they're eight years apart like you just hmm. you know you yeah, just, just use... visually indicate that time well, has yeah. passed you don't need that's to write what you can do in later. film like you can like but like you know i i think and he was wearing glasses it. to show that time had passed yeah, yeah exactly yeah but you have this opportunity where you have your climax of the film can be like a montage and i mean the novelty of a montage having watched this film like <laughs> Yeah. Just like this complete there's a like a real lack in a lot of these Netflix movies to like understand that you can like tell multiple plots at the same time. Um Yeah. Like, but like Yeah, just like a, a lack of uh, like fluency in cinematic language. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. But I I'm just imagining now like a really beautiful sort of like concluding montage which is like it's it's the the reunion, the final reunion of like Anne Elliott and uh, I keep thinking he's called Cosmo Jarvis now. <laughs> yeah, uh, but this final re- reunion of them, like in the street, her running after him, like you know, her like finally, like you know, them saying how they feel to each other and stuff, um, and layering that up with that final moment where she's persuaded to break things off with him, mm-hmm. and actually like seeing the tragedy and the co- and the sort of you know, com- I say comedy like as in comedy in the old sense conclusion yeah. to it is that would be such an incredible piece of filmmaking that would be yeah. so I'm kind of nice. getting chills just imagining that yeah right and 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 like and it's an opportunity to really like use the title like persuasion like make it about persuasion like, right like that's why it's called that <laughs> yeah exactly yeah I think that's such just that little structural tweak and that that also it's a great opportunity for an adapter right because you get to go mm-hmm. okay let's think of a bunch of new stuff like that's that's great like to to take this really well known and and full property that's like been adapted by the BBC and whatever like they've done it how it's meant to be done so now let's see how it can be done in an interesting way and mm-hmm. that sounds really interesting to me wow yeah man that, good idea wow. a- thanks <laughs> thank you i'm uh, for folks at home i'm tossing my hair behind my shoulder <laughs> I think because we touched on it at the beginning, not to say that that solves the script entirely, but I think that goes some way of doing it. Because we touched on it at the beginning about costume and design and things, yeah. I think we should probably, and it's something we don't often talk about, maybe because it's not our skill set, but like the overall aesthetic, the visual mm-hmm. element of this. What should this film look like? That I think is such a great question. Um, I mean, of course, I'm thinking of 
you know, past examples of when I think it's done quite well would be something like, you know, the 2005 adaptation of Pride and Prejudice directed by Joe Wright, or even the, I believe it was the BBC um, miniseries version about 10 years prior to that, Yeah, where, like, it's not necessarily that you're, like, really blown away by by the costuming, but rather I feel like both of those adaptations had this kind of sense of, like, the the tactile that yeah. this film doesn't like, you know, kind of appealing to our, our sense of touch with with fabric. And I mean, I'm thinking, of course, of like, you know, Colin Firth, you know, wet, <laughs> you know, in his wet shirt. But like, you know, it sounds silly, but like, you know, you can see texture. Like, you know, yeah. we all can imagine what a wet shirt feels like and we can feel that in our hands and or yeah. like you know feel a velvet or something but it yeah. felt like you know we're all just seeing a lot of cotton <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it yeah. doesn't like like that no, doesn't no. appeal to our like tactile senses at all but i think that's like the sumptuousness of a lot of other period adaptations that yeah. it's something that people like about them that, yeah. that you can play around with that like you can play around with fabric and material and appealing to um you know other senses of of you know of our perception yeah and and something as well i guess that's different about those adaptations which i've not really seen all the way through but i've sort of vaguely seen bits of <laughs> yeah is but like visually like it trade what's happened between then and now is as we've gone like pushed further into digital and it's not to say that shooting this digitally is wrong like it makes absolute sure. sense but as we push further into digital we trade out the subtlety of color for mm. like if we want to see bold colors we have to put bold colors on screen and actually like it's possible to to show us color digitally without it just being like like neon turquoise walls and you yeah. know like <laughs> it just i think it's a real shame that we don't get more subtle like uses of whites and blacks and browns and like simple dyes that everyone would have been wearing day to day like, mm -hmm. like and, and i think that does come down to texture as well but like you know how uninteresting was henry golding's like morning outfit like i don't even remember <laughs> exactly it's, it's nothing like it's just whereas there's an opportunity there to be like layering up textures and and like using the subtlety of like blacks that like black isn't just black like there's there's levels to yeah. it right like and i think there's a way like because everything just has this flat digital like look to it and and not enough time is spent on color correcting and things like that on these netflix productions like they kind of just mm -hmm. slap a filter over it and say that'll do but actually <laughs> like so yeah you know like this film looks like it was shot digitally and then it had like an instagram vivid filter like yeah like you know what i mean like yeah. it just but like that's not it's not about seeing vivid colors when you know when people complain about like the marvel films being really like gray mm -hmm. uh it's not that the colors need to be more vivid or like that we need to have bolder colors it's just that like you just have to have a better understanding of what colors you're presenting on screen and this film right. just didn't really seem to have an understanding of them. yeah it seemed like an and afterthought and importance of color you know like yeah what why dress a character in a certain way and yeah i just think that there's there's more there was so much more to be done with color as well as like you said texture in the costuming and the, yeah. and the design and things yeah it's just missing a lot and to think like they're shooting in bath which is like a very it's a very like beige city because of the <laughs> like the sandstone from this period yeah but like there's something interesting to do with that like it's not beige in an uninteresting way <laughs> right it's beige in a very textured way i've been to yeah. the i've been to the roman baths and yeah. they're actually quite stunning yeah um and it has a lot like you know when you look at i mean you know there's stone and and you know of different kinds and that yeah. that you know that has a texture to it yeah. Um, and it feels like in many ways, perhaps that's a, a good metaphor for how this film was made. There's not a, not a lot of texture to it. There's not a lot. I would agree with that. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I guess as well, the opportunity of the new structure you've introduced of like the past and the present is actually you can have a visual difference between the opulence of her youth when she was falling in love against the like bankruptcy of the present. Um, right. 
and you can show that in the sets and the places we visit but also in the lighting like i quite like the idea like a lot of this film takes place in like kitchens and things mm-hmm. um and i quite like the idea of like there's some like attempt to do them in like the sort of afternoon light and they're sort of darker places but like have them sat there like at like with a candle lighting them or whatever you know like right and, and, and having like this sort of darker dingier present yeah against this like bright opulent Ooh. past where she's in big ballrooms with yeah. chandeliers lighting them and stuff like there's a scene Whoa, early on where good. they're like at a dinner party and she's like playing a piano and it looks mm-hmm. like it looks so dreary <laughs> but yeah. like which is that's okay if like we we see like a a ball from her past where she's playing the piano and mm-hmm. and we think this is one of the most beautiful places like that you could spend an evening like i, I think there's you need the contrast to 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 know what the right. bankruptcy means to the family you know yeah i mean i don't say this a lot and i feel like mo- like most of the time this is not a criticism of a film but it's yeah. almost like despite it feeling like one of the longest movies i've ever seen <laughs> it it almost starts too late in the story yeah. you know i mean we're yeah. we're kind of introducing this uh, kind of dual narrative but part of why i think that would improve the telling of this story to you know further illustrate uh, you know more clearly these these themes and and to make this story more powerful and to understand the weight of this love story um is the fact that like we don't know i mean like everything we know about the past we're kind of just told in dialogue yeah and yeah. we don't see any of it and it's like yeah. it starts too late in the story like we get <laughs> we jump in when they're already bankrupt that's and, it, yeah. You know, and so we don't understand and we never see anything before that. And, you know, as I understand in the novel, like, you know, there's there's not much in it before that, but but the novel has the advantage of being a novel, so yeah. and it's and it lives in Anne's head. So we yeah, get exactly, to know yeah. her very intimately as a person, and you don't have that in a film, you know, unless you're making something very experimental, which this is not, you know, yeah. the the camera is, is from an objective perspective. And so in order to um, get access to that interiority and to understand the weight of this story, we have to see it through whatever a camera can look at. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, we've, we've kind of, you know, where we start, we've cut out you know, some important backstory. I don't say that a lot. You know, you don't think it's too much backstory, but yeah, I think yeah. in this case, you you do need it. But um, I, I think, and I think there's cuts to be made to the story that we do see. Yeah. Because there's a lot of there's a lot of faffing. There's a lot. There's a lot of just. <laughs> there's a lot of. Oh, uh, we're going to bath, but you need to go visit your sister Mary, and you're going to sit there and look after the kids while she goes to a dinner, and then. Then you're going to meet the guy anyway, and then right. you're going to all go on a trip down to Lyme Regis, and then and it's just like what a load of faff! Like you could just <laughs> you could just cut like you could just cut it straight to your your sister needs you to join her in Lyme Regis, right. and then like have the gang form in there, like and, the and they're all hanging out. Well, because this is the funny thing, right? Is we get towards the the concluding section and there's this whole thing of like oh we'll have a reunion of the lime gang or whatever the, the crew right. i don't know i can't remember what word they use and i'm like oh yeah that was a group of that was a distinct group of people like i forgot <laughs> but right. like make like, it a distinct really group care. of people make it interesting that that group of people have been thrown together in right. this specific place and make the first first half of the of that part of the film that that's that story the present day stuff like that and then you can even do a time jump or something to then like be like, oh wow, like we're getting the we're getting the gang back together. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> you know, like I I think there's a way of like if we're then telling the backstory, we can cut some of the fat from the beginning of the film, um, right. and actually, and and it means you can have a first act where the audience don't really know what changed between the past and the present to make the present the way it is, mm-hmm. and that's interesting as well. That's intriguing. That's like something to keep watching for, which this film gave me no reasons to keep watching. Yeah. Yeah, the question of, like, how did they get from that, like, beautiful opulence to this kind of very dreary place that all of them are in, that yeah. everybody kind of seems unhappy. But, yeah, as as it stands, we're not really given a reason to care about anybody other yeah. than the fact that we're told we're supposed to. Um, 
So it doesn't really, you know, there's, it undercuts all the tension because why should we care one way or the other? Like that's, that's the cardinal sin of so many movies that could be better. Just that like, you know, they give me a reason to care. You take it for granted that I care and I don't until you convince me to care. Yeah, I'm just imagining uh, like a like a like a Godfather style opening scene where it's but it's the the lawyer explaining like the level of bankruptcy to the you know Richard E. Grant's character yeah. and like and he's just like sat in like a room where like all of the furniture's got like those dust sheets over it and whatever <laughs> and like and it's just like and it, and like, maybe it's happening like in the in the like late evening and the and it's lit by candlelight and stuff and mm-hmm. it's like. And it's just like this moment, like you have an opening of a film that is basically like the setting the stakes of like you you live the life of opulence and now you've got nothing and this is what you're going to have to do and this is how it's going to affect your family and that immediately sets the scene to go how did that happen and then and then so then you're starting the story in two places of like this dreary like sad and melancholic that's the thing i keep seeing mentioned by people online around the the character of Anne elliott is it should be Mm -hmm. melancholic it should be yearning for a nostalgic past and there's no yearning in this film and if you can give us something to yearn for as an audience then we we have a reason to want to see Anne elliott yearn for it too yeah we're we're just told that she yearns for it and you know she's like she has moments where she's like bummed out and embarrassed (laughs) um and we don't really know why yeah yeah. (laughs) you know yeah we don't have a reason why we should why we should care i mean i think about like i mean you think about uh, like pride and prejudice uh you know for example in uh, you know the 2005 version with Karen knightley um and matthew mc Badian? Am I pronouncing that correctly? I feel yeah, like I'm... Yeah, why not? <laughs> okay. But, you know, like, you know, they're meant to not like each other, but we can still see how they, like, they do have a connection. Like, yeah. they're both very intelligent. They're both good-looking. Yeah. Like, you know, we can understand, like, we we know what the other one would be losing out on if they don't end up together. Yeah. And I think, you know, even like this, this version, I mean, this version almost takes too long to, to show us what she's missing. <laughs> yeah. So then by the yeah. time we do see him, you know, we've lost it. The, the moment to make us care is past. And then furthermore, yeah. like, you know, Cosmo Jarvis isn't given a lot to, <laughs> to make us, you know, yeah. to make us like Wentworth or to root for him to be with Anne. Yeah, and it, it was it was a real battle to make me not like Henry Golding enough. You know, yeah. Like, he seemed like someone who like liked Anne, thought she was interesting, whatever. And it was only like right towards the end where he sort of became a bit weird and a bit controlling that you start to go, oh, this is the wrong person for her. But right. like but like oh yeah and we haven't even talked about it but like how whack is the bit where he's just making out with that woman yeah like what <laughs> like okay like the film just like basically seems to entirely forget itself for like 12 seconds and you're just like yeah what? and then, <laughs> What's then when he realizes it's over with Anne, he goes back to making yeah. out with her like uh, i'm just like what what is the what is that like which i'm sure that... in another movie might have been a very funny bit but it's not like the film wasn't a farce, you know, like, right. it wasn't, like it's yeah, no, yeah, it's it doesn't hold up that tone consistently enough to earn yeah. that. So we won't do that either. That And then uh, that's it. I think we're done, right? We fixed it. Yeah. I mean, maybe <laughs> I would we said, like. And then not that weird bit at the end. <laughs> right. I think to be honest, I'm, I'm feeling like that's um, I'm persuaded of our. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I'm persuaded. I'm persuaded. I'm convinced. Um, yeah, I think we've done it again. I I think we've done it as we always do. We'll really briefly like so what I think next episode we're going to do like a big Netflix wrap up where we just sort of talk about the big themes from this series. Yeah. Before we move on to something else, but just really quickly what about persuasion? Cuz I think this is different. It's newer to start with cuz we've had a like a nearly a whole year of not doing this. Um Yeah. But like what what about persuasion makes it a netflix film that's maybe similar to the stuff we've talked about but maybe also different to the stuff we've talked about that maybe touches on where netflix is at right now yeah i i I still think this is like a really interesting question and it feels like the answer to it is still changing i mean yeah as we've already said 
to me, I think it's often characterized by the sense of not committing to choices and lack of intentionality in many yeah. ways, whether that's you know, visually or in terms of storytelling, that it's, it's, you know, almost like it's designed to appeal not to the lowest common denominator, but to like, you know, the, the widest audience possible. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I think like, you know, for something to be good, there's gotta be people who don't like it, you know, in the sense that yeah. it's like, it's gotta be something that is not going to necessarily be everybody's cup of tea, you know, because that's, that's the sacrifice you make with making a choice that yeah. by doing one thing, it's the, you know, the, uh, cost benefit, you know, by yeah. doing one thing, you're not doing something else. And so one person's going to like what you're doing which means that there's going to be somebody who's not going to like what you're doing. Mm. Um, but then you have people who are going to feel passionate about it when they do like it, as opposed to, yeah. you know, kind of aiming for how many people can we get to put their eyeballs on this for <laughs> at least 20 minutes um, so we get the, the rankings up. And I, I think that's interesting because I think Netflix version of Broad Appeal is one that is just how can we get a a minute and a half long or two minute long trailer or even like a minute preview that's good enough on the home screen that people will click on this like that's what it yeah. feels like it just feels and and that's then going to be bearable to watch for an hour and 50 minutes mm -hmm. like it it just seems yeah it seems like films that are led more by marketing than by than by actual filmmaking and it's interesting because this is one so as far as I could tell from the credits and things, this is made by a separate company and then sold onto Netflix. And we've kind of talked about the difference between Netflix in-house and Netflix mm -hmm. distribution stuff. But actually that there is overall, there's massive crossover between the two. And a friend of ours who I won't name and I won't say too much about, but worked on a couple of films over the summer as a runner that do seem a lot like the kind of thing that's going to end up going straight to Netflix. Mm -hmm. And and the, the kind of common themes from working on those uh, films was that basically that things were that were not well organized. And so what what little artist or or sort of visionary intention was there was completely lost in the mess of trying to make the thing get made as quickly as possible. Yeah. And and a lot of it was about attaching a name that's big enough to sell to it and then get it made as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And it's why Netflix can churn out a film a week, yeah. <laughs> which is <laughs> still wow. a stat that depresses me massively Yeah, um, because they're basically getting these uh, outsourced companies to just get their films made so that they can be sold onto Netflix and distributed. And and I think that creates a lack of intention. I think that's the big thing we've seen across everything. And again, we'll get to it on next episode, but you're, you're absolutely right. It is, there is no, I can't see any interesting choices being made here because mm -hmm. the only, the only choice that's being made about this film, the only real interpretation is this sort of flea baggy kind of uh, thing. And, it doesn't commit hard enough to it if it was right. going to do it. And it doesn't make sense for the story or the character. <laughs> so no. The two sort of cardinal sins of making a choice. Yeah. <laughs> is one didn't commit and two doesn't work. But... Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And, and, but it's clear why they would make that choice because Fleabag was great and people seem to quite like Enola Holmes, <laughs> you know, like yeah. the, which I've not, I've not actually seen Enola Holmes. But, I saw the first film. Yeah. But people are pretty positive about it. Like, which I, don't know. I enjoyed. Yeah. But like. I enjoyed it more than this. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> they're not the same thing just because well, yeah, it's set in a different period like they shouldn't be doing the same thing right like uh yeah it's just a, a horrible use of a gimmick rather than rather than in yeah a, a sort of intentional artistic choice uh which i yeah. think is sort of yeah is a big netflix issue and that's like i mean and that's kind of a the sad thing that it feels like often the the commonality between a lot of these netflix either produced or distributed films is just like i often leave them feeling with this like sense of cynicism of yeah. like we can just make whatever and you'll watch it and yeah. <laughs> that's fine yeah. and you know there's like you know almost no creative risks taken and when they are they're not committed to or 
yeah. you know, made at the right time. Um, as you were saying, like, you know, the two cardinal sins of making a choice, one doesn't commit, two, it doesn't work. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, and and I think there's something quite cynical about that. To, yeah. like, we can just make whatever. And I, I, you know, I felt this acutely after watching Six Underground. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> remember that? Um, <laughs> that was rattling around my brain. <laughs> yeah, where you like, we could just make anything and yeah. s- slap whatever we feel like in a movie, <laughs> and it doesn't really have to be good or well yeah. thought out or intentional, and you'll watch it and you'll make it, you know, top 10 on our website. Where, where can people find you on the uh, social media? The <laughs> social media. Um, uh, y'all can find me online on Instagram, Twitter, until it implodes, and Letterboxd, um, <laughs> all at Hiya Harrison. So tell me how wrong I am. Come <laughs> find me. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd as well, at Caleb Lebster. <laughs> Gets me every time. (laughs) (laughs) I made it when I was 13, okay? It's Um, good. (laughs) Um, And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Do Try This Pod. Uh, Come let us know uh, what you thought of our attempts to. um, Did we persuade you with our rewrite persuasion? (laughs) Hello. If a joke ain't broke, you know, don't fix it. That's what I say. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see you next time for a big wrap up on netflix season uh and before we go uh we did do try this at home uh, every, every time you didn't forget i was hoping maybe you would forget that and drop it but uh, i was wrong yeah absolutely no chance of that happening we um, we did do try this at home we did do try this at home all right all right bye. well we'll catch you all next time <laughs> Bye. Like we're hanging up a phone call. That was a Maybe You Like It production. Maybe you liked it. Maybe you didn't. <laughs>